Blog Talk Radio. This is Know It All. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Many thanks again to D.C. High School student Trayvon for the wonderful theme music. We aim to make you, our listeners, know-it-alls about education, law, policy, and practice that affect you. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash know-it-all. Today's show is a featured show on the Blog Talk Radio homepage. Be sure to follow us at blogtalkradio.com. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity and public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Today we are talking about the language of equity, how teachers, advocates, researchers, and others can utilize language in a way that is effective, respectful, and empowering for students. We will talk specifically about teachers and what teachers can do and are doing to ensure that all students are served equitably and that students are provided a social justice context from which to conduct themselves. I am honored to have with me today two incredible teacher educators. Enid Lee is the director of Enid Lee Consultants and is a researcher, writer, consultant, facilitator, and speaker. Deborah Mankart is the Executive Director of Teaching for Change, which provides teachers and parents with the tools to create schools where students learn to read, write, and change the world. Good morning to you both. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Good morning, Allison. It's an honor to to be on your show. Well, I wonder if we could start. Enid, will you talk to us about what anti-racist education and anti-bias education is? Okay, briefly, I wanted to say that it's a good focus that we have on language because the very terms anti-racist and anti-bias are themselves indications of uh, the way in which language is important in helping us change the worlds that you've just described in the schools. Anti-racist education specifically, which can be sometimes seen as a negative term, is really a proactive, preventative positive approach to education where we confront racism in materials and in methods and take a stand for including um, materials, methods, building climates where students of all backgrounds can be included in terms of history and the contemporary setting. And it also challenges them and prepares them to think about the world critically and to act on it. So specifically with anti-racist education, we focus on questions of race and how that intersects with other aspects of identity, such as gender and so on. And um, that that has been a pattern, a trend in education. I think we saw the rise of it mostly in England first, in the UK, in the mid-80s, and then we have had expressions of it in Canada and um United States and so forth. But that is basically what we do in anti-racist education. We challenge racism and build pro-human um, cultures and bodies of knowledge and engage students to do that. Mm-hmm. Deborah, why is it important that, that schools and, 
educators focus on anti-racist education? Uh, what we found is that it's it's a way of connecting students. You know, students are always challenging what's not real, and when you do the the more traditional multicultural education every year, it might be celebrations. They might talk about food and culture, but it doesn't get at the real issues students face. So, you know, I can give you an example here in Washington D.C. We have a large uh, immigrant population from El Salvador. And there's a lot of tension often between, uh, you know, the new immigrant population coming in from El Salvador, uh, you know, to a city that's l- largely a city that's got a, um, you know, struggling economy, uh, and people are wondering why are they coming here? Maybe they're coming here to take our jobs. Who are they? And so when schools would do uh, celebrations every year, let's just celebrate Latino culture and let's have food, that didn't really get at the underlying history and why people were here. We found that when we did workshops that looked at the history, why people came, what was the history in El Salvador, for example, of U.S. involvement and and the resistance in El Salvador, that then people found that while these people had faced a lot of challenges, and some of the challenges our own government created, and they're similar to the challenges we faced here in the district with a largely Afri- African-American population, so there, then people started to find connections, develop mutual respect, and similarly, the Salvadoran immigrant population was able to learn about the struggles faced um, in African American history, and not just the struggles, but the resistance. And over and over, when we did workshops with teachers, with students, with parents, you would find people sharing how much they developed respect for each other. So not just, I like your food, but wow, you've, um, you know, throughout your history, you have, cha- you have faced these challenges and overcome them. Um, so it's very different. Uh, and, and so it's really, I think, it's looking at issues of power um, and uh, oppression, resistance, uh, really going beyond the, uh, the food and the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, Enid, you know, I think that um, a lot of times what I hear from teachers and educators is that they're, they're afraid of stepping on toes, right? But they're they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Um, they, they're afraid of offending some group of people. Um, what what does equity in the classroom look like, and how can teachers uh, make sure that they are being respectful in their language, but they're, that they're also um, in in being respectful, not ignoring history? Mm-hmm. I think that's a key to understanding uh, how to get to equity is to look at the inequity, is to be able as a teacher to say, where are the gaps in what I'm teaching? Who is missing from this account? So that's one thing to just ask. Who is this about and who is it not about? And then to use the power that we have as teachers to name who it is we need to be talking about so that, and not talking about in very specific ways. So for instance, the example that Deborah gave about uh, Washington, D.C., with who's coming and who's there. But be very clear on who we're talking about when we talk about who, who built things, you know, name African Americans, not just on um, in February, but throughout the year. Include the, their, their realities in things like math and so forth in terms of, you know, who, what, how, how can we make math problems that include the actions that people have done in a positive way. So I think that if we encourage teachers to use the material 
the subject areas that they have to, before them and ask, how might I work with this to be more inclusive? And then to help them focus on students' response to that because that students' response to the, the curriculum, to the approaches that they're using, because that, I think, encourages teachers to be less nervous when they see that, in fact, what they're doing is making a difference to students' engagement, which we talk a lot about in classrooms, and wanting to learn more, you know. And the question about making mistakes, anti-racist education, language about anti-racist education, actually is like learning a second language. And like any time you're learning a second language, you are going to make mistakes. But the only way you're going to learn to use it is to use it and to learn from that, you know. So mm -hmm. that's generally how I encourage teachers to have a go at it to practice it, to be willing to make a mistake, and to celebrate the times when it actually works very well. Mm -hmm. I say um, often that I think student voice is so important to um, anything that, that is happening in education reform or um, that's happening in the classroom. And, um, you know, this this idea of, of uh, anti-racist education and language as a a second language and it being a learning process, I think, really highlights the need to include students mm -hmm. um, and, and make sure that they are equal players at the table right. um, as, as teachers are testing out these um, these new methods and as they're testing out things that they're learning in history. Um, and I think that one thing that gets in the way of that engagement is student discipline some, a lot of times. And, and we think often about student discipline as um, punishment rather than an opportunity to learn. Um, mm -hmm. Will you talk about student discipline, Enid, and, and how that interacts with anti-racist education? Yeah, that's a, a key piece. The student discipline, both in terms of just education in general, as I would say it is at the heart of our struggle around achievement because one of the things that happens is that students, particularly African-American students and Latino students, are seen in many settings as students who are going to create a problem, you know. And one of the things I encourage teachers to do is look at that word defiance, which is, which is frequently um, put on a referral sheet, and to ask yourself, what constitutes defiance in my class? And whose behavior is considered defiant and whose behavior is considered just assertive. So I think critiquing our own perceptions of conduct, I think, is key as one. And the second is, is to go for an assets-based approach to discipline as opposed to focusing on deficits. I'm thinking of a conversation I had with a teacher just yesterday. Uh, actually, I'm in, I'm, I'm in Canada right now, and this teacher talked about the danger of a single story, which some people may know about through a TED um, uh, work uh, program, where they talk about the danger of a single story in curriculum content. This teacher talks about the danger of a single story when it comes to looking at a student. So a student may have broken a rule in the school, but that um, story about his or her breaking the rule becomes the only story. And what we encourage teachers to do is to look at the multiple ways in which students are doing the correct things, in which they are, you know, leading and sharing, and to create a fuller picture. So if our approach to discipline is one of restoration as opposed to simply um, punishment, 
then we're in a totally different ball game. And I've seen classrooms where that approach, at schools where that approach is taken, and students flourish. You know, because the whole issue of discipline and students so closely linked to the pipeline between schools and prisons is very much linked to, I would say, you know, ideas about the plantation and who should still be on them and so forth. So at a very concrete level, if we go for assets and we see discipline as something to restore as opposed to destroy and break down, we would we would be, you know, doing anti-racist work. Mm-hmm. Even how students are described, I think, is important. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. The um, difference between I'm, saying that a student... Go ahead. Mm-hmm. The I'm, difference between I'm, saying that a student is a behavior problem as opposed to saying this student has not behaved well today is, is, yeah. is a, just a very a concrete example. And I think that's that's what we see with the language often is is mm-hmm. that you know the the same behavior the same mm-hmm. um, characteristics in mm-hmm. one student or another can be defined very mm-hmm. differently depending on mm-hmm. our perspective and our our mindset mm-hmm. with respect to one student versus another. Um, mm-hmm. You know I, I I have talked about the um, American Promise documentary that that is out um, that is being shown on PBS and. Um, that is being shown around the country. Um, And this documentary is about um, two black male students who are admitted to, you know, Dalton, um, a very exclusive uh, private school in New York, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it follows them on that journey, and it it really demonstrates that letting them in the door wasn't enough, but mindsets Mm -hmm. had to change. And and that work ha- that work wasn't done to change mindsets, um, and I think that's kind of the obvious example of mindsets not being changed. But then there there are um, with you know institu- institutionalized and systemic racism, um, it no longer really matters who's sitting in the chair of authority mm-hmm. and where mm-hmm. mindsets mm-hmm. are um, with respect to you know black boys, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they, that the mindsets have been developed by the system, then it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter who's sitting in the chair. Um, Deborah, mm-hmm. what what has Teaching for Change done with teachers and educators to really begin to, to change the mindsets that have been developed by these systems? Well, one example, actually, a, a wonderful example we have recently at one of the schools where we were working with in D.C., uh, Washington, D.C., the teachers were constantly complaining that the parents just, they couldn't get the parents on board to um, to understand how important education was for their children. And so often it became uh, a, a sort of a block in their own thinking about how to improve the quality of education because they were, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously, assuming that the problem was the parents. And our parent organizer, America Calderon, who works at the school, from her interaction with the parents, knew that they were, of course, equally concerned about, if not more so, the education of their own children than than any school staff member could possibly be. Um, But she realized that the system had just um, contributed to that. It wasn't even necessarily the teacher's fault. It's just that we live in a operate in a system that tends to to point the fingers and and blame um, people, particularly if they are lower income or people of color, or in this case, largely immigrant, um, also not native English speakers. And so what she did was uh, created, we had a a panel 
a situation where we created a panel of the parents to talk, and rather than having the parents, um, you know, have an interpretation, what we did is we put the headsets on the teachers. And so the uh, parents were able to talk without interruption and talk about their their concerns about their children's education, their their vision, their hopes for their children, um, and and speak freely because they didn't have to pause for interpretation. And meanwhile, the the teachers were able to listen with an interpreter with their headsets. And the shift um, was just it was palpable, and it happened within that was in less than an hour. Um, by the time the teachers had heard, I think we had about twelve parents speaking. Um, there was just not a there was just no doubt that the parents had the exact same concerns that the teachers did, and it shifted it turned the tables. The question then became, what can we all do together, not how can I get you to care about your children mm-hmm. so that's I think creating the opportunities for people to hear um uninterrupted and to to really to un, to recognize what are the minds the 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 assumptions and what structure or or um opportunity we can can we create to have those assumptions challenged mm-hmm. in a way that's a very good example of how language just that there was an example of how the power of language actually is effective in puncturing racist thinking mm-hmm. you know and, yes, and, and having the parents' own voices, and I think it was extremely important that that they not have to pause because if you're speaking and you have to constantly pause for a translator, it also makes you think that there's something wrong with what you're saying. You know that mm-hmm. you're saying is not clear enough, and you have to your the the flow and the dialogue and the interaction among the panelists would have been interrupted. Um, and it was also helpful for the teachers to experience what does it feel like having to have be the ones with the headsets on. Often, um, you know, it was the parents who have to sit there with the headsets. So it was uh, useful on two levels um, to have that, again that that shift in who has to who requires the interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know empathy is very important and uh when they're when placed in situations of forced empathy i feel like the language will follow um enid i've I've heard you talk about um you know black children and the language that african-american children um are raised in many african-american children how how can teachers uh respect and value the the language that African American children carry without trivializing it or mimicking it or um making children feel bad for um what they the way that they speak. Yes, well that's a, a an important um piece of work that's being done in some places where teachers are are given professional development around the nature of the language spoken by some African-American students, the whole history of the language, its features, um, and how those features would have been developed, and also in the work, what is known as contrastive analysis, where what you do is um, help students know um, how to uh, move from the home language to the school language um, when in, in, in a given context, and to know what to use when. But it it is not the kind of thing that a teacher can just know how to do on his or her own. Schools need to devote time and resources to helping teachers learn about Ebonics, learn where it fits, what it comes from, and that it is not slang, and that it is a 
full carrier of human experience and that it isn't a question of teaching students Ebonics. It's a question of honoring it and helping students see what is similar about that, um, between that and school language and learn which ones to use when. And when you're able to do that, as a teacher, as a whole school, all kinds of wonderful things happen. Students who don't say anything speak up. Teachers who think that students don't know anything find out otherwise. And a whole flood of human experience gets brought in, but it needs to be um, you know, thought through, and teachers need to be equipped to do it because that's when the attitude shifts, when teachers, in fact, know things. There are times when we ask our educators to do things for which they're not prepared, and then we are disappointed that they don't do them. But when we give them the tools, they are able to move forward with that. And I've seen schools where that has been the case and thinking of <clears throat> some of the work that Teaching for Change has published in Beyond Tears and Holidays, some of the things that have come in Rethinking Schools. There are examples of that happening in, um, you know, all across the country. Yeah, it's, 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 it can be done, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think speaking of teacher vo- like voices and student voices, what I think we're seeing in schools is sadly a situation where we, we're concerned about the teacher-student uh, voice being honored. But in many cases, what contributes to the students' voices being silenced is that teachers' voices are being silenced right now and, mm-hmm. and dishonored and disrespected. And so if you create, if the schools are environments in which they're punitive environments and mm-hmm. Uh, teachers are being blamed for 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 school failure and and not being tapped for any of the the solutions. Uh, we're not creating a, a a rich learning community. Uh, so I think really a key to having a a, a more uh, productive and respectful learning community is also to start respecting the voice of the teachers and parents, um, and that would flow to the students as well. Yeah. And and that's an assets-based approach that we recommend in anti-racist education for students. We need to do it with teachers, and when we do that, wonderful things happen. You know, this um, era of accountability that's so um, poorly defined in terms of people showing test scores as opposed to accountability having to do with a sense of relationship and responsibility that people feel about their work and the people they work with is a part of what's contributing to this. And in cases where that's not the case, where, where it's different, we have results where students learn, where they're creative, and, you know, other critical thinkers about the world and want to do something with them, with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how do we empower teachers and parents and families and community members to support students through a language of equity. How do we do that? Enid? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Because, you know, (laughs) I mean, when I think about the, um, even just using, even just the language of invitation and encouragement of places to start. So, for example, when taking Deborah's instance where there was a perception that parents weren't interested in their children's education, one of the things that I do frequently when I'm talking with teachers who may say that, I say, you know, let's start with what they are interested in. And, of course, the minute we do that, we find that it is the very thing that teachers are interested in. So I think starting, embracing people exactly where they are is the key one. 
you know, in terms of the language we use of invitation. I think the importance of organizing the elements, the various constituencies that we work with, that's key. People realize they're not alone. They realize that others share their, you know, experience. They realize what power they have in terms of making a difference. I think also helping that parents and community members understand how the system works, school systems work, so that they can have those systems work in the interest of their children is a key uh, or features that, you know, can make a difference. And we see examples of that in the things that, you know, teaching for change will do and the work among families. But I think education, organizing, a spirit of collaboration, building on the assets that people have the very point of our meeting is important. And, you know, and being willing to talk it through. You know, I was, I was thinking the other day how so many things have been limited to 140 characters because we tweet now. We have to go beyond that. We have to just expand it. You know, take the time to elaborate. Mm-hmm. Take the time to say all who is included. Take the time to explore. So, for instance, when someone says they're not interested in their children's education, we take some time and talk about well, what are they interested in, and then we come right back to the place where we started, which is they are interested in their children's education, and it's manifested in ways that maybe you do not quite recognize because it's different from what you have experienced. So those are some everyday on-the-ground things that I personally engage in. Mm-hmm. Right. And I would add to that, I think, I think key in that is the, the, the asset space, is recognizing that the solutions do exist in the school and that if we're constantly looking to outside quick fixes and package programs and mm-hmm. punitive approaches, we're not going to see any results. But if we respect that the, the, the assets exist in the school and the question is providing the time for collective um, exploration of those assets, because I think the example going back to the the panel with the parents, if we had had interactions with individual parents saying, you know, and individual teachers, those would have been seen as exceptions. Well, the parents in general don't care except for, you know, Mrs. So-and-so, um, whereas having the panel sort of immediate made it, made it clear that collectively the parents have these concerns. So, we now and it didn't solve the problem. There's still problems uh, in the school and problems with student achievement, but now we can collectively figure out how to address these. So, I think providing the time, the time for the exploration, um, that going beyond the, the the tweet length characters and time is key. Mm-hmm. And I, I also think a working knowledge of, of history is very important, and and um, for empowering anyone and and helping anyone understand how communities have shaped where we are today, um, and and Deborah, I know you know teaching for change has done a lot to communicate history to students and teachers and parents. Will you talk a little bit about that work? Sure, and it's 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 uh, uh, it is so it can be so empowering, and so it becomes uh, very interesting how we've been stripped of that history. 
And so one great story is recently we've been working in Macomb, Mississippi, and Macomb, we've had the honor of working there. Macomb is where uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, started. It was the site of the first, one of the first high school student walkouts in the country during the Civil Rights Movement. Actually, today is the anniversary of the, um, the end of the Vietnam War, and many people don't know that actually it was um, among the uh, students and SNCC veterans or SNCC workers in Macomb, one of the first um, anti-war statements, petitions, got written. Um, but when we visited Macomb a few years ago, not a single high school student knew any of that history. They thought their town had nothing to do with the civil rights movement and, in fact, uh, thought that their town just was not very important and as many uh, you know, adolescents in a, in a small town just sort of couldn't wait to leave. And we've had the honor of recently working with the students to start exploring that history. Uh, they've been conducting interviews. They've been looking at primary documents, going to conferences, meeting the veterans. And for the f past two years have created uh, short documentary films about the history, one about the history of the walkout, and then this year about the history of the voting rights struggle. They've entered them in the state um, history day competition, one uh, last year and this year, and will now be coming to D.C. for the National History Day. Oh, and wow. what more exciting than them winning the competition or documenting the history is that over and over the students are now saying that they now um, appreciate the town where they live. They are, are curious to learn more. A number of them are seeing themselves as historians. Uh, they're all committed to voting and to make sure that other vote, others vote now that they know the struggle that was involved. And, and education has just come alive for them. Uh, so I think it's a great example of where when you open the door for students to explore the true history, it becomes much more interesting and empowering uh, and strengthens their civic engagement today. Whereas if every year we just told the same traditional narrative of one or two people, you know, in the case of the civil rights movement, of Dr. King and, and Rosa Parks all by themselves sort of creating the civil rights movement, um, you students are not as engaged, nor do they learn. In fact, not only do they not learn a valuable lesson, if anything, they learn that you just have to wait for the next hero to come along, um, that you can't do anything. You just have to wait for some superhuman person to uh, to appear on the scene. Mm -hmm. just, just in relation to history and, you know, um, organ, organize, organizations and the policies they have, I think the other piece of history that it, students um, are excited to learn about it's the role that communities have played in changing, the, in helping to bring out the policies that are actually in schools. You know, for instance, when we think of um, Brown versus the board, I, I, I like to think back to the parents, the family of the, the, the girl. Of Linda Brown, who, right. Linda Brown, right. You know, and so many times things that are policies in organizations, we think they were made because somebody sat in a big office and decided that today with the stroke of a pen, we would change it. Whereas, in fact, so many policies that have to do with racial justice in education or housing or whatever have come out of the actions of unnamed people. And that kind of history is also the history that I think, you know, needs to be part of it. Mm -hmm. Right, and also they don't the role of parents and the role of of students their age. You know the the Brown v. Board the the case involved the stu the story from um, 
Moton High School in Prince Edward County, where there's a 16-year-old Barbara Johns decided that the conditions should no longer, um, you know, that they should receive uh, better quality education and better conditions and organized a walkout. She was 16 years old, uh, but students don't, you know, they, they sort of, they get the pictures of Thurgood Marshall in the court. They don't get yes. the pictures yes. of people their own age or the Children's March in Birmingham, mm-hmm. um, you mm-hmm. know, or in, or in, in uh, the NAACP Youth Councils in Mississippi, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the countless people who were their own age. Mm-hmm. And even things like bringing in the number of days that people match, I think it's 382. Many uh, teachers now include that as a math, as a math question. Just that number has mm-hmm. importance. Yeah, so it didn't so, happen instantaneously. So, that Rosa Parks didn't sit right. on the bus and then right. uh, the, the buses were desegregated, right? right. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and then the strategies you... that were involved. How would you communicate to people for yes. all those days? Yes. About yes. how to organize when you don't have email, you email. don't have uh, you know Twitter. Twitter yeah. How are you, you don't have yeah. cell phones? How would they communicate? Yes. It becomes a yes. the, the, yes. and actually in the story of Barbara Johns and and, and Moton, she knew she wanted to talk with the other students. She arranged mm-hmm. to have the principal called out of the building at the time mm-hmm. of an assembly so she could talk with the mm-hmm. students. Partly because mm-hmm. she needed the time to talk with them, also so that it protected him that he could not, you know, he could not be blamed for what mm-hmm. happened. So I think it's yes, yes. You know, that that level of strategic thinking that these weren't just spontaneous acts; these were people yes. um, being very yes. strateg- being very strategic in the face of great, uh, you know, face, while they face great odds. And, and the math that you need to do that to time mm-hmm. it to figure out how long he should be out, to figure yes. out how long she should be there. And and I, I stress that because sometimes people think that anti-racist work is only in social studies, you know, or it's only in language arts. And what we're finding, it's everywhere. And all of those um, disciplines become energized, humanized, and greatly relevant to students when we um, build historic pieces of information into our content. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you both. Enid Lee is the director of Enid Lee Consultants. She's a, a master teacher, educator, researcher, writer, consultant, facilitator, and speaker. Deborah Mankart is the executive director of Teaching for Change, which provides teachers and parents with the tools to create schools where students not only learn to read and write, but they also learn to change the world. Thank you both for being here this morning. Well, thank you for inviting us. Yes, thank, thank you. you very much. Okay. Twitter, find ABC on Facebook, and read my blog at allisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.